Hello there, and welcome to tonight's episode of Down to Sleep. This is the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. Every week, I read books to you to help you get down to sleep tonight. You can listen to this podcast every week for free on podcast apps and Spotify, or you can join me on Patreon to get access to every single episode and completed audiobooks so far, as well as two episodes every week. Now take a nice deep breath for me, and let's get down to sleep. We continue from where we last left off, hour by hour, and week by week. The thing upon the canvas was growing old. It might escape the hideousness of sin, but the hideousness of age was in store for it. The cheeks would become hollow or flaccid. Yellow crow's feet would creep around the fading eyes and make them horrible. The hair would lose its brightness. The mouth would gape or droop, would be foolish or gross as the mouths of old men are. There would be the wrinkled throat, the cold blue-veined hands, the twisted body that he remembered in the grandfather who had been so stern to him in his boyhood. The picture had to be concealed. There was no help for it. Bring it in, Mr. Hubbard, please, he said, wearily, turning around. I'm sorry I kept you so long, but I was thinking of something else. Always glad to have a rest, Mr. Gray, answered the frame-maker, who was still gasping for breath. Where shall we put it, sir? Oh, anywhere. Here, this'll do. I don't want to have it hung up. Just lean it against the wall. Thanks. Might one look at the work of art, sir? Dorian started. It would not interest you, Mr. Hubbard, he said, keeping his eye on the man. He felt ready to leap upon him, fling him to the ground if he dared lift the gorgeous hanging that concealed the secret of his life. I shan't trouble you any more now. I'm much obliged for your kindness in coming round. Not at all, not at all, Mr. Gray. Ever ready to do anything for you, sir. Mr. Hubbard tramped downstairs, followed by the assistant, who glanced back at Dorian with a look of shy wonder in his rough, uncomely face. He had never seen anyone so marvellous. When the sound of their footsteps had died away, Dorian locked the door and put the key in his pocket. He felt safe now. No one would ever look upon the horrible thing. No eye but his would ever see his shame. On reaching the library, he found that it was just after five o'clock and that the tea had already been brought up. On a little table of dark, perfumed wood, thickly encrusted with nacre, a present from Lady Radley, his guardian's wife, a pretty, professional invalid who had spent the preceding winter in Cairo. There was lying a note from Lord Henry, and beside it was a book bound in yellow paper, the cover slightly torn and the edges soiled. A copy of the third edition of the St. James's Gazette had been placed on the tea tray. It was evident that Victor had returned. 
He wondered if he had met the men in the hall as they were leaving the house, and wormed out of them what they had been doing. He would be sure to miss the picture, had no doubt missed it already while he had been laying tea things. The screen had not been set back, and a blank space was visible on the wall. Perhaps some night he might find him creeping upstairs, trying to force the door of the room. It was a horrible thing to have a spy in one's house. He had heard of rich men who had been blackmailed all their lives by some servant who had read a letter or overheard a conversation, picked up a card with an address or found beneath a pillow a withered flower, a shred of crumpled lace. He sighed, and having poured himself out some tea, opened Lord Henry's note. It was simply to say that he sent him round the evening paper, and a book that might interest him, that he would be at the club at 8.15. He opened the St. James's languidly and looked through it. A red pencil mark on the fifth page caught his eye. It drew attention to the following paragraph. Inquest on an actress. An inquest was held this morning at the Bell Tavern, Hoxton Road, by Mr. Danby, the district coroner, on the body of Sybil Vane, a young actress recently engaged at the Royal Theatre Holborn. A verdict of death by misadventure was returned. Considerable sympathy was expressed for the mother of the deceased, who was greatly affected during the giving of her own evidence and that of Dr. Birrell, who made the post-mortem examination of the deceased. He frowned, and tearing the paper in two, went across the room and flung the pieces away. How ugly it all was, and how horribly real ugliness made things. He felt a little annoyed with Lord Henry for having sent him the report, and it was certainly stupid of him to have marked it with red pencil. Victor might have read it. The man knew more than enough English for that. Perhaps he had read it, and had begun to suspect something. And yet, what did it matter? What had Dorian Gray to do with Sybil Vane's death? There was nothing to fear. Dorian Gray had not killed her. His eye fell on the yellow book that Lord Henry had sent him. What was it, he wondered. He went towards the little pearl-coloured octagonal stand that had always looked to him like the work of some strange Egyptian bees that wrought in silver. Taking up the volume, he flung himself into an armchair and began to turn over the leaves. After a few minutes, he became absorbed. It was the strangest book that he had ever read. It seemed to him that in exquisite raiment and to the delicate sound of flutes, the sins of the world were passing in dumb show before him. Things that he had dimly dreamed of were suddenly made real to him. Things of which he had never dreamed were gradually revealed. It was a novel without a plot, and with only one character. Indeed, simply a psychological study of a certain young Parisian, who spent his life trying to realise, in the 19th century, 
all the passions and modes of thought that belonged to every century except his own. To sum up, as it were, in himself the various moods through which the world spirit had ever passed, loving for their mere artificiality those renunciations that men have unwisely called virtue, as much as those natural rebellions that wise men still call sin. The style in which it was written was a curious jeweled style, vivid and obscure at once. There were in it metaphors as monstrous as orchids and as subtle in colour. The life of the senses was described in the terms of mystical philosophy. One hardly knew at times whether one was reading the spiritual ecstasies of some medieval saint, or the morbid confessions of a modern sinner. It was a poisonous book. The heavy odour of incense seemed to cling about its pages and to trouble the brain. The mere cadence of the sentences, the subtle monotony of their music, so full as it was of complex refrains and movements elaborately repeated, produced in the mind of the lad as he passed from chapter to chapter a form of reverie a malady of dreaming that made him unconscious of the falling day and creeping shadows. Cloudless and pierced by one solitary star, a copper-green sky gleamed through the windows. He read on by its one light till he could read no more. Then, after his valet had reminded him several times of the lateness of the hour, he got up and going into the next room, placed the book on the little Florentine table that always stood at his bedside, and began to dress for dinner. It was almost nine o'clock before he reached the club, where he found Lord Henry sitting alone in the morning room, looking very much bored. "'I'm so sorry, Harry,' he cried, "'but really it is entirely your fault.' That book you sent me so fascinated me that I forgot how the time was going. Yes, I thought you might like it, replied his host, rising from his chair. I didn't say I liked it, Harry. I said it fascinated me. There is a great difference. Ah, oh, you have discovered that, murmured Lord Henry. And they passed into the dining room. Chapter 11 for years, Dorian Gray could not free himself from the influence of this book. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that he never sought to free himself from it. He procured from Paris no less than nine large paper copies of the first edition, and had them bound in different colours, so that they might suit his various moods and the changing fancies of a nature over which he seemed at times to have almost entirely lost control. The hero, the wonderful young Parisian in whom the romantic and the scientific temperaments were so strangely blended, became to him a kind of prefiguring type of himself. Indeed, the whole book seemed to him to contain the story of his own life, written before he had lived it. 
In one point, he was more fortunate than the novel's fantastic hero. He never knew. Never, indeed, had any cause to know. That somewhat grotesque dread of mirrors and polished metal surfaces and still water, which came upon the young Parisian so early in his life, occasioned by the sudden decay of a bow that had once apparently been so remarkable. It was with an almost cruel joy, and perhaps in nearly every joy, as certainly in every pleasure, cruelty has its place, that he used to read the latter part of the book, with its really tragic, if somewhat overemphasized account of the sorrow and despair of one who had himself lost what in others in the world he had most dearly valued. For the wonderful beauty that had so fascinated Basil Hallward, and many others besides him, seemed never to leave him. Even those who had heard the most evil things about him. From time to time strange rumours about his mode of life crept through London, and became the chatter of the clubs. They could not believe anything to his dishonour when they saw him, he had always the look of one who had kept himself unspotted from the world. Men who talked grossly became silent when Dorian Gray entered the room. There was something in the purity of his face that rebuked them. His mere presence seemed to recall to them the memory of innocence that they had tarnished. They wondered how one so charming and graceful as he could have escaped the stain of an age that was at once sordid and sensual. Often, on returning home from one of those mysterious and prolonged absences that gave rise to such strange conjecture among those who were his friends or thought they were so, he himself would creep upstairs to the locked room, open the door with the key that never left him now, and stand with a mirror, in front of the portrait that Basil Hallward had painted of him. Looking now at the evil and aging face on the canvas, and now at the young, fair face that laughed back at him from polished glass. The very sharpness of the contrast used to quicken his sense of pleasure. He grew more and more enamoured of his own beauty more and more interested in the corruption of his own soul. He would examine with minute care and sometimes with monstrous and terrible delight the hideous lines that seared the wrinkling forehead or crawled around the heavy, sensual mouth, wondering sometimes which were the more horrible, the signs of sin or the signs of age. He would place his white hands besides coarse, bloated hands of the picture, and smile. He mocked the misshapen body and the failing limbs. There were moments indeed at night when, lying sleepless in his own delicately scented chamber, or in the sordid room of the little ill-famed tavern near the docks, under an assumed name and in disguise it was his habit to frequent, he would think of the ruin that he had brought upon his soul, with a pity that was all the more poignant because it was purely selfish. 
but moments such as these were rare. That curiosity about life which Lord Henry had first stirred in him, as they sat together in the garden of their friend, seemed to increase with gratification. The more he knew, the more he desired to know. He had mad hungers that grew more ravenous as he fed them. Yet he was not really reckless, at any rate in his relations to society. Once or twice every month during the winter, and on each Wednesday evening while the season lasted, he would throw open to the world his beautiful house, having the most celebrated musicians of the day to charm his guests with the wonders of their art. His little dinners, in the settling of which Lord Henry always assisted him, were noted as much for the careful selection and placing of those invited as for the exquisite taste shown in the decoration of the table, with its subtle symphonic arrangements of exotic flowers and embroidered cloths and antique plate of gold and silver. Indeed, there were many, especially among the very young men, who saw, or fancied that they saw in Dorian Gray, the true realization of a type of which that they had often dreamed in Eton or Oxford days, a type that was to combine something of the real culture of the scholar with all the grace and distinction and perfect manner of a citizen of the world. To them, he seemed to be of the company of those whom Dante describes as having sought to make themselves perfect by the worship of beauty. Like Gautier, he was one for whom the visible world existed. And certainly to him, life itself was the first, the greatest of the arts, and for it all the other arts seemed to be but preparation. Fashion, by which what is really fantastic becomes for a moment universal, and dandyism, which in its own way is an attempt to assert the absolute modernity of beauty, had of course their fascination for him. His mode of dressing, and the particular styles that from time to time he affected, had their marked influence on the young exquisites of the Mayfair Balls and the Pall Mall Club, who copied him in everything that he did, and tried to reproduce the accidental charm of his graceful, though to him only half-serious, fopperies. For while he was but too ready to accept the position that was almost immediately offered to him on his coming of age, and found indeed a subtle pleasure in the thought that he might really become to the London of his own day, what to imperial Neronian Rome the author of the Satyricon once had been. Yet in his inmost heart he desired to be something more than a mere arbiter of elegantarium, to be consulted on the wearing of a jewel, or the knotting of a necktie, or the conduct of a cane. He sought to elaborate some new scheme of life that would have its reasoned philosophy and its ordered principles, and find in the spiritualizing of the senses its highest realization. The worship of the senses has often, and with much justice, been decried. 
men feeling a natural instinct of terror about passions and sensations that seem stronger than themselves, and that they are conscious of sharing with the less highly organized forms of existence. But it appeared to Dorian Gray that the true nature of the senses had never been understood, and that they had remained savage and animal merely because the world had sought to starve them into submission or kill them by pain, instead of aiming at making them elements of a new spirituality, of which a fine instinct for beauty was to be the dominant characteristic. As he looked back upon man moving through history, he was haunted by a feeling of loss. So much had been surrendered, and to such little purpose. There had been mad willful rejections, monstrous forms of self-torture and self-denial, whose origin was fear, and whose result was a degradation infinitely more terrible than that fancied degradation from which in their ignorance they had sought to escape. Nature, in her wonderful irony, driving out the anchorite to feed with the wild animals of the desert, and giving to the hermit the beasts of the field as his companions. Yes, there was to be, as Lord Henry had prophesied, a new hedonism that was to recreate life, to save it from that harsh, uncomely puritanism that is having in our own day its curious revival. It was to have its service of the intellect, certainly, yet it was never to accept any theory or system that would involve the sacrifice of any mode of passionate experience. Its aim, indeed, was to be the experience itself, not the fruits of experience, sweet or bitter as they might be, of the asceticism that deadens the senses, as of the vulgar profligacy that dulls them. It was to know nothing, but it was to teach man to concentrate himself upon moments of a life that is itself but a moment. There are few of us who have not sometimes wakened before dawn, either after one of those dreamless nights that make us almost enamoured of death, or one of those nights of horror and misshapen joy, when through the chambers of the brain sweep phantoms more terrible than reality itself, an instinct with that vivid life that lurks in all grotesques, and that lends to gothic art its enduring vitality, this art being, one might fancy, especially the art of those whose minds have been troubled with the malady of reverie. Gradually, white fingers creep through the curtains. They appear to tremble. In black, fantastic shapes, dumb shadows crawl into the corners of the room and crouch there. Outside there is the stirring of birds among the leaves, or the sound of men going forth to their work, the sigh and sob of the wind coming down the hills, wandering around the silent house, as though it feared to wake the sleepers, and yet must needs call forth sleep from her purple cave. Veil after veil of thin, dusky gauze is lifted, and by degrees the forms and colours of things are restored to them. We watch the dawn remaking the world in its antique pattern. The one mirrors get back their mimic life, 
The flameless tapers stand where we had left them, and beside them lies the half-cut book that we had been studying, or the wired flower that we had worn at the ball, the letter that we had been afraid to read, or that we read too often. Nothing seems to us changed. Out of the unreal shadows of the night comes back the real life that we had known. We have to resume it where we had left off. There steals over us a terrible sense of the necessity for the continuance of energy in the same wearisome round of stereotyped habits. A wild longing it may be that our eyelids might open some morning upon a world that had been refashioned anew in the darkness for our pleasure. A world in which things would have fresh shapes and colours and be changed, or have other secrets, a world in which the past would have little or no place, or survive at any rate, in no conscious form of obligation or regret. The remembrance even of joy having its bitterness, and the memories of pleasure their pain. It was the creation of such worlds as these that seemed to Dorian Gray to be the true object, or amongst the true objects, of life. And in his search for sensations that would be at once new and delightful, and possess that element of strangeness that is so essential to romance, he would often adopt certain modes of thought that he knew to be really alien to his nature abandon himself to their subtle influences, and then, having as it were caught their colour and satisfied his intellectual curiosity, leave them with that curious indifference that is not incompatible with the real ardour of temperament, and that indeed, according to certain modern psychologists, is often a condition of it. It was rumoured of him once that he was about to join the Roman Catholic Communion and certainly the Roman ritual had always a great attraction for him. The daily sacrifice, more awful really than all the sacrifices of the antique world, stirred him as much by its superb rejection of the evidence of the senses as by the primitive simplicity of its elements, and the eternal pathos of the human tragedy that it sought to symbolize. He loved to kneel down on the cold marble pavement and watch the priest, in his stiff, flowered dalmatic, slowly and with white hands moving aside the veil of the tabernacle, raising aloft the jeweled, lantern-shaped monstrance with that pallid wafer that at times one would fain think is indeed the Panis Celestis, the bread of angels, robed in the garments of the Passion of Christ, breaking the host into the chalice and smiting his breast for his sins. The fuming senses that the grave boys in their lace and scarlet tossed into the air like great gilt flowers had their subtle fascination for him. As he passed out he used to look with wonder at the black confessionals and long to sit in the dim shadow of one of them, listen to men and women whispering through the worn grating the true story of their lives but he never fell into the error of arresting his intellectual development by any formal acceptance of creed or system, 
of mistaking for a house in which to live, an inn that is but suitable for the sojourn of a night, or for a few hours of a night in which there are no stars and the moon is in travail. Mysticism, with its marvellous power of making common things strange to us, and the subtle antinomianism that always seems to accompany it, moved him for a season. And for a season he inclined to the materialistic doctrines of the Darwinismus movement in Germany. He found a curious pleasure in tracing the thoughts and passions of men to some pearly cell in the brain, or some white nerve in the body, delighting in the conception of the absolute dependence of the spirit on certain physical conditions, morbid or healthy, normal or diseased. Yet, as has been said of him before, no theory of life seemed to him to be of any importance compared with life itself. He felt keenly conscious of how barren all intellectual speculation is when separated from action and experiment. He knew that the senses, no less than the soul, have their spiritual mysteries to reveal. And so he would now study perfumes, the secrets of their manufacture, distilling heavily scented oils and burning odorous gums from the east. He saw that there was no mood of the mind that had not its counterpart in the sensuous life. He set himself to discover their true relations, wondering what there was in frankincense that made one mystical, and in violets that woke the memory of dead romances, and in musk that troubled the brain, in champak that stained the imagination, and seeking often to elaborate a real psychology of perfumes, to estimate the several influences of sweet-smelling roots, scented, pollen-laden flowers, of aromatic balms, and of dark and fragrant woods, of spikenard that sickens, of Hovenia that makes men mad, and of aloes that are said to be able to expel melancholy from the soul. At another time he devoted himself entirely to music, and in a long latiste room, with a vermilion and gold ceiling and walls of olive-green lacquer, he used to give curious concerts. The harsh intervals and shrill discords of barbaric music stirred him at times, when Schubert's grace and Chopin's beautiful sorrows and the mighty harmonies of Beethoven himself fell unheeded on his ear. He collected together from all parts of the world the strangest instruments that could be found, either in the tombs of dead nations or among a few tribes that survived contact with Western civilizations and loved to touch and try them. He had the mysterious Juruparis of the Rio Indians, that women are not allowed to look at, and even youths may not see till they've been subjected to fasting and scourging, and the earthen jars of the Peruvians that have the shrill cries of birds and flutes of human bones, the sonorous green jaspers that are found near Cuzco and give forth a note of singular sweetness. He had painted gourds filled with pebbles that rattled when they were shaken. The long clarin of the Mexicans, into which the performer does not blow, but through which he inhales the air. 
the harsh tour of the Amazon tribes that is sounded by the sentinels who sit all day long in high trees and can be heard, it is said, at a distance of three leagues. The Tepanastli has two vibrating tongues of wood and is beaten with sticks that are smeared with an elastic gum obtained from the milky juice of plants. The otter bells of the Aztecs that are hung in clusters like grapes and a huge cylindrical drum covered with the skins of great serpents, like the one that Bernal Diaz saw when he went with Cortes into the Mexican temple, and of whose doleful sound he has left us so vivid a description. The fantastic character of these instruments fascinated him. He felt a curious delight in the thought that art, like nature, has her monsters, things of bestial shape and with hideous voices. Yet after some time he wearied of them, and would sit in his box at the opera, either alone or with Lord Henry, listening in rapt pleasure to Tannhauser, and seeing in the prelude to that great work of art a presentation of the tragedy of his own soul. On one occasion he took up the study of jewels, and appeared at a costume ball as the Admiral of France, in a dress covered with five hundred and sixty pearls. This taste enthralled him for years, and indeed may be said never to have left him. He would often spend a whole day settling and resettling in their cases the various stones that he had collected, such as the olive-green chrysoberyl that turns red by lamplight, the simophane with its wire-like line of silver, the pistachio-coloured peridot, rose-pink and wine-yellow topazes, carbuncles of fiery scarlet with tremulous forayed stars, flame-red cinnamon stones, orange and violet spinels, and amethysts with their alternate layers of ruby and sapphire. He loved the red gold of the sunstone, and the moonstone's pearly whiteness, the broken rainbow of the milky opal. He procured from Amsterdam three emeralds of extraordinary size and richness of colour, and had a turquoise de la Vielle Roche that was the envy of all the connoisseurs. He discovered wonderful stories about jewels. In Alfonso's clericalis disciplina, a serpent was mentioned with eyes of real jacinth, and in the romantic history of Alexander, the conqueror of Amathia was said to have found in the Vale of Jordan snakes with collars of real emeralds growing on their backs. There was a gem in the brain of the dragon, Philostratus told us, and by the exhibition of golden letters in a scarlet robe, the monster could be thrown into magical sleep and slain. According to the great alchemist Pierre de Boniface, the diamond rendered a man invisible, and the agate of India made him eloquent. The Cornelian appeased anger in the hyacinth provoked sleep. The amethyst drove away the fumes of wine. The garnet cast out demons. The hydropicus deprived the moon of her color. The selenite waxed and waned with the moon and the Meliseus that discovers thieves could be affected only by the blood of kids. Leonardus Camillus had seen a white stone taken from the brain of a newly killed toad that was a certain antidote against poison. The bazaar that was found in the heart of the Arabian deer was a charm that could cure the plague. 
in the nests of Arabian birds was the aspilates that, according to Democritus, kept the wearer from any danger by fire. The king of Silan rode through his city with a large ruby in his hand, as the ceremony of his coronation. The gates of the palace of John the priest were made of sardius, with the horn of the horned snake ink-wrought, so that no man might bring poison within. Over the gable were two golden apples, in which were two carbuncles, so that the gold might shine by day, and the carbuncles by night. In Lodge's strange romance, uh, Marguerite of America, it was stated that in the chamber of the queen one could behold all the chaste ladies of the world, encased out of silver, looking through fair mirrors of chrysolites, carbuncles, sapphires, and green emeralds. Marco Polo had seen the inhabitants of Zipangu place rose-coloured pearls in the mouths of the dead. A sea monster had been enamoured of the pearl that the diver brought to King Perosis, and had slain the thief and mourned for seven moons over its loss. When the Huns lured the king into the great pit, he flung it away, nor was it ever found again. Though the emperor Anastasius offered five hundred weight of gold pieces for it, the king of Malabar had shown to a certain Venetian a rosary of three hundred and four pearls, one for every god that he worshipped. How exquisite life had once been! How gorgeous in its pomp and decoration! Even to read of the luxury of the dead was wonderful. Then he turned his attention to embroideries and the tapestries that performed the office of frescoes in the chill rooms of the northern nations of Europe. As he investigated the subject, and he always had an extraordinary faculty of becoming absolutely absorbed for the moment in whatever he took up, he was almost saddened by the reflection of the ruin that time brought on beautiful and wonderful things. He, at any rate, had escaped that. Summer followed summer, and the yellow jonquils bloomed and died many times. Nights of horror repeated their story of their shame, but he was unchanged. No winter marred his face or stained his flower-like bloom. How different it was with material things, where had they passed to? Where was the great crocus-coloured robe on which the gods fought against the giants that had been worked by girls for the pleasure of Athena? Where the huge valerium that Nero had stretched across the Colosseum at Rome, that the curious table-napkins wrought for the priest of the sun, on which were displayed all the dainties and viands that could be wanted for a feast, the mortuary cloth of King Shilperic, with its three hundred golden bees, the fantastic robes that excited the indignation of the Bishop of Pontus, and were figured with lions, panthers, bears, dogs, forests, rocks, hunters, all, in fact, that a painter can copy from nature, and the coat that Charles of Orleans once wore, on the sleeves of which were embroidered the verses of a song beginning, Madame, je suis tout joyeux the musical accompaniment of the words being wrought in gold thread, and each note of square shape in those days formed with four pearls. He read of the room that was prepared at the palace at Rheims for the use of Queen Joan of Burgundy, 
decorated with 1,321 parrots, made embroidery blazoned with the king's arms, 561 butterflies, whose wings were similarly ornamented with the arms of the queen. The whole worked in gold. Catherine de' Medici had a mourning bed made for her of black velvet powdered with crescents and suns. Its curtains were of damask, the leafy wreaths and garlands figured upon a gold and silver ground, fringed along the edges with broideries of pearls. It stood in a room hung with rows of the queen's devices in cut black velvet upon cloth of silver. And so for a whole year he sought to accumulate the most exquisite specimens that he could find of textile and embroidered work. He had a special passion also for ecclesiastical vestments, as indeed he had for everything connected with the service of the church. In the long cedar chests that lined the west gallery of his house, he had stored away many rare and beautiful specimens of what is really the raiment of the Bride of Christ, who must wear purple and jewels and fine linen, that she may hide the pallid macerated body that is worn by the suffering she seeks for, wounded by self-inflicted pain. He possessed a gorgeous cope of crimson silk and gold-threaded damask, figured with a repeating pattern of golden pomegranates, set in six-petaled formal blossoms, beyond which on either side was a pine-apple device wrought in seed-pearls. The orphreys were divided into panels representing scenes from the life of the Virgin, and the coronation of the Virgin was figured in coloured silks upon the hood. This was Italian work of the fifteenth century. Another cope was of green velvet, embroidered with heart-shaped groups of acanthus leaves, from which spread long-stemmed white blossoms, the details of which were picked out with silver thread and coloured crystals. The morse bore a seraph's head in gold-thread raised work. The orphreys woven in a diaper of red and gold silk, starred with medallions of many saints and martyrs, among whom was Saint Sebastian. He had chasubles also of amber-coloured silk and blue silk, gold brocade and yellow silk damask, a cloth of gold figured with representations of the Passion and Crucifixion of Christ, embroidered with lions and peacocks and other emblems. Dalmatics of white satin and pink silk damask, decorated with tulips and dolphins. Altar frontals of crimson velvet and blue linen. Many corporals' chalice veils and sidereia. In the mystic offices to which such things were put, there was something that quickened his imagination. For these treasures, and everything that he collected in his lovely house, were to be to him means of forgetfulness, modes by which he could escape for a season, from the fear that seemed to him at times to be almost too great to be borne, upon the walls of the lonely locked room where he had spent so much of his boyhood. He had hung with his own hands the terrible portrait whose changing features showed him the real degradation of his life. In front of it had draped the purple and gold pall as a curtain, for weeks he would not go there, would forget the hideous painted thing and get back to his light heart, his wonderful joyousness, his passionate absorption in mere existence. 
Then suddenly, some night, he would creep out of the house, go down to dreadful places near Blue Gate Fields and stay there, day after day, until he was driven away. On his return, he would sit in front of the picture, sometimes loathing it and himself, but filled at other times with that pride of individualism, half the fascination of sin, smiling with secret pleasure at the misshapen shadow that had to bear the burden that should have been his own. After a few years he could not endure to be long out of England, and gave up the villa that he had shared at Treville with Lord Henry, as well as the little white-walled in-house at Algiers where they had more than once spent the winter. He hated to be separated from the picture that was such a part of his life, and was also afraid that during his absence someone might gain access to the room, in spite of the elaborate bars he had caused to be placed upon the door. He was quite conscious that this would tell them nothing. It was true the portrait still preserved under all the foulness and ugliness of the face a marked likeness to himself. But what could they learn from that? He would laugh at anyone who tried to taunt him. He had not painted it. What was it to him how vile and full of shame it looked? Even if he told them, would they believe it? Yet he was afraid. Sometimes when he was down at his great house in Nottinghamshire, entertaining fashionable young men of his own rank who were his chief companions, astounding the county by the wanton luxury and gorgeous splendour of his mode of life, he would suddenly leave his guests and rush back to town to see that the door had not been tampered with, that the picture was still there. What if it should be stolen? The mere thought made him cold with horror. Surely the world would know his secret then. Perhaps the world already suspected it. For while he fascinated many, there were not a few who distrusted him. He was very nearly blackballed at a West End club of which his birth and social position fully entitled him to become a member, and it was said that on one occasion, when he was brought by a friend into the smoking-room of the Churchill, the Duke of Berwick and another gentleman got up in a marked manner and went out. Curious stories became current about him after he had passed his twenty-fifth year. It was rumoured that he had been seen brawling with foreign sailors in a low den in distant parts of Whitechapel, that he consorted with thieves and coiners and knew the mysteries of their trade. His extraordinary absences became notorious, and when he used to reappear again in society, men would whisper to each other in corners, pass him with a sneer, look at him with cold searching eyes, as though they were determined to discover his secret. Of such insolences and attempted slights he, of course, took no notice, and in the opinion of most people, his frank debonair manner, his charming boyish smile, the infinite grace of that wonderful youth that seemed never to leave him, were in themselves a sufficient answer to the calumnies, for so they termed them that were circulated about him. It was remarked, however, that some of those who had been most intimate with him appeared after a time to shun him. Women who wildly adored him, and for his sake braved all social censure and set convention at defiance, were seen to grow pallid with shame or horror if Dorian Gray 
entered the room. Yet these whispered scandals only increased in the eyes of many his strange and dangerous charm. His great wealth was a certain element of security. Society, civilized society at least, is never ready to believe anything to the detriment of those who are both rich and fascinating. It feels instinctively that manners are of more importance than morals, and in its opinion the highest respectability is of much less value than the possession of a good chef. And after all, it is a very poor consolation to be told that the man who has given one a bad dinner or poor wine is irreproachable in his private life. Even the cardinal virtues cannot atone for half-cold entrees, as Lord Henry remarked once in a discussion on the subject, and there is possibly a good deal to be said for his view. For the canons of good society are, or should be, the same as the canons of art. Form is absolutely essential to it. It should have the dignity of a ceremony as well as its unreality. It should combine the insincere character of a romantic play with the wit and beauty that makes such plays delightful to us. Is insincerity such a terrible thing? I think not. It is merely a method by which we can multiply our personalities. Such, at any rate, was Dorian Gray's opinion. He used to wonder at the shallow psychology of those who conceive the ego in a man as a thing simple, permanent, reliable, and of one essence. To him, man was a being with myriad lives and myriad sensations, a complex, multiform creature that bore within itself strange legacies of thought and passion, whose very flesh was tainted with the monstrous maladies of the dead. He loved to stroll through the gaunt, cold picture gallery of his country house, looking at the various portraits of those whose blood flowed in his veins. Here was Philip Herbert, described by Francis Osborne in his memoirs on the reigns of Queen Elizabeth and King James as one who was caressed by the court for his handsome face, which kept him not long company. Was it young Herbert's life that he sometimes led, had some strange poisonous germ crept from body to body till it reached his own? Was it some dim sense of that ruined grace that had made him so suddenly and almost without cause give utterance in Basil Hallward's studio to the mad prayer that had so changed his life? Here, in gold-embroidered red doublet, jewelled surcoat, and gilt-edged rough and wristbands, stood Sir Anthony Sherard, his silver and black armour piled at his feet. What had this man's legacy been? Had the lover of Giovanna of Naples bequeathed him some inheritance of sin and shame? Were his own actions merely the dreams that the dead man had not dared to realise? Here from the fading canvas smiled Lady Elizabeth, in her gauze hood, pearl stomacher and pink slashed sleeves. A flower was in her right hand, and her left clasped an enamelled collar of white and damask roses. On a table by her side lay a mandolin and an apple. There were large green rosettes upon her little pointed shoes. He knew her life and the strange stories that were told about her lovers. Had he something of her temperament in him? These oval, heavy-lidded eyes seemed to look curiously at him. What of George Willoughby, with his powdered hair and fantastic patches. How evil he looked. 
The face was saturnine and swarthy, and the sensual lips seemed to be twisted with disdain. Delicate lace ruffles fell over the lean yellow hands that were so overladen with rings. He had been a macaroni of the eighteenth century, and the friend in his youth of Lord Ferrars. What of the second Lord Beckenham, the companion of the Prince Regent in his wildest days, and one of the witnesses at the secret marriage with Mrs. Fitzherbert? How proud and handsome he was, with his chestnut curls and insolent pose! What passions had he bequeathed? The world looked upon him as infamous. He had led orgies at Carlton House, the star of the garter glittered upon his breast. Beside him hung the portrait of his wife, a pallid, thin-lipped woman in black. Her blood also stirred within him. How curious it all seemed! And his mother, with her Lady Hamilton face and her moist, wine-dashed lips. He knew what he had got from her. He had got from her his beauty, his passion for the beauty of others. She laughed at him in her loose, piquant dress. There were vine leaves in her hair. The purple spilled from the cup that she was holding. The carnations of the painting had withered, but the eyes were still wonderful, in their depth and brilliancy of colour. They seemed to follow him wherever he went. Yet one had ancestors in literature as well as in one's own race, nearer perhaps in type and temperament. Many of them, and certainly with an influence of which one was more absolutely conscious. There were times when it appeared to Dorian Gray that the whole of history was merely the record of his own life. Not as he had lived it, in act and circumstance, but as his imagination had created it for him, as it had been in his brain and in his passions. He felt that he had known them all, those strange terrible figures that had passed across the stage of the world, and made sin so marvellous and evil so full of subtlety. It seemed to him that in some mysterious way their lives had been his own. The hero of the wonderful novel that had so influenced his life had himself known this curious fancy. In the seventh chapter he tells how, crowned with laurel, lest lightning might strike him, he had sat as Tiberius in a garden at Capri, reading the shameful books of Elephantis, while dwarfs and peacocks strutted round him, and the flute-player mocked the swinger of the censer, as Caligula had caroused with the green-shirted jockeys in their stables, and supped in an ivory manger with a jewel-frontleted horse and as Domitian had wandered through a corridor lined with marble mirrors, looking round with haggard eyes for the reflection of the dagger that was to end his days, sick with that ennui, that terrible tedium vitae, that comes on to those whom life denies nothing. Over and over again, Dorian used to read this fantastic chapter, and the two chapters immediately following, in which, as in some curious tapestry or cunningly wrought enamels, were pictured the awful and beautiful forms of those whom vice and blood and weariness had made monstrous or mad. Filippo, Duke of Milan, who slew his wife and painted her lips with a scarlet poison that her lover might suck death from the dead thing that he fondled, Pietro Barbi, the Venetian known as Paul II, who sought in his vanity to assume the title of Formasus 
whose tiara, valued at two hundred thousand florins, was brought at the price of a terrible sin. John Maria Visconti, who used hounds to chase living men, whose murdered body was covered with roses by a harlot who had loved him. The Borgia on his white horse, with fratricide riding beside him, his mantle stained with the blood of Perotto, Pietro Riario, the young cardinal archbishop of Florence, child and minion of Sixtus the Fourth, whose beauty was equalled only by his debauchery, who received Leonora of Aragon in a pavilion of white and crimson silk, filled with nymphs and centaurs, and gilded a boy that might serve at the feast of Ganymede. Eslin, whose melancholy could be cured only by the spectacle of death, who had a passion for red blood as other men have for red wine. The son of the fiend, as was reported, one who had cheated his father at dice when gambling with him for his own soul. There was a horrible fascination in them all. He saw them at night. They troubled his imagination in the day. The Renaissance knew of strange manners of poisoning. Poisoning by a helmet and a lighted torch by an embroidered glove and a jeweled fan. Dorian Gray had been poisoned by a book. There were moments when he looked on evil simply as a mode through which he could realize his conception of the beautiful. And that is where we close the book tonight on this episode of Down to Sleep. 